BAFTA creates platforms for open debate, and so the views expressed in this programme are only those of the contributors. Hello and welcome to the BAFTA podcast. My name's Sandra Townsend, I am 25, and I ate licorice laces for breakfast this morning. You didn't need to know that, but what's important to know is that we're coming to you from Sheffield Dockfest. We'll hear from celebrated filmmakers, top commissioners and Dockfest director Heather Crowell. Stay with us. Welcome to Sheffield. I'm in front of the Crucible Theatre and around me I can see loads of people with pink badges armed with Sheffield Documentary Festival Bibles. Everyone's really up for it, really excited to see what's in store for DocFest 2013. Earlier I sat down with Ollie Lambert, whose latest documentary film, Syria Across the Lines, was broadcast on Channel 4 in April. He was at DocFest to give a masterclass on interviewing. But even though he's won tonnes of awards, he's still learning his craft. I remember years ago I made a documentary in Iraq just when the Iraq war broke out in 2003. And when I got back to London... I went to my editor's house and I put this bag of tapes on the desk. It's about 60 hours of material to make a one-hour programme. And I said to my editor, he's called Stefan, I said, Stefan, I haven't got a clue what this film's going to be about. And he said, excellent, it's a perfect place to start. And we sat down and we watched absolutely everything. Because it's only when you sit down calmly and watch what you filmed that things start to become clear about what the film is going to be and what you want to focus on. It's very time-consuming and there's just no way around it. Sometimes I've had lots of situations where you go out and you film for a day and at the end of it you think, do you know what, I'm never going to be using that. And you just have to accept that. But often the time that you spend filming with someone not getting what you need just gives you more chances to get what you do actually need. And also when you're filming things that you don't think you might need, something might happen that you never expected and you're there with the camera turning. It's exactly what happened on Syria Across the Lines. I'd gone to film someone and was filming something really boring of him making a cup of tea and serving tea to some friends of his. And just as that happened, you know, a a, a regime jet flew overhead and dropped a bomb on the village that I was filming in, and I was 300 metres away. And so that became one of the most important things I've ever filmed. But if I'd taken a look at that room and thought, this is a bit boring, a man's just serving tea, then I would never have got that scene. So a lot of it is just making your own luck and being in the right place at the right time and accepting that, You might not use this footage, but you never know, it might lead somewhere. I know you've worked a lot in TV, um, on The Family as well, which I loved, that series of the Nigerian family. It was amazing. The first thing they tell you in filmmaking, especially in TV, is collaborative medium. You're going to have to work with people all the time. You're going to have to get on with people. And it sounds like, as a self-shooter, you work a lot on your own. But it sounds as well, from what you're saying, that you've actually worked with, with a lot of people. So, I mean, how, how is that? At what process, at what point do you get other people involved well the whole process of making a film is is incredibly collaborative anyone who tries to do it on their own will come unstuck really quickly and it's always about you know if you see a film that's directed and filmed and edited by the same person i always think that's going to be probably doomed from the start it's very very rare someone can pull that off you need extra pairs of eyes and ears extra brains people to point out the things to you that you might not have realized to help you get the things that you can't possibly get to be in the place that you can't get to but at the same time successful documentary films are usually the realization of one person's vision and you you can still collaborate but maintain what it is that you want to achieve as a director as a filmmaker 
I do think that it's very difficult to have more than one director on a project because a director, by the very nature, must be making difficult and big decisions that fundamentally set the tone and the feel and the, the direction of the story. It's very difficult if you've got more than one person trying to do that. It's like two people trying to drive a car. But in order for that car to drive, you've got to have engineers, you've got to have the equipment, you've got to have a map, you need to where you're going, you need lots of people to help, you need places to stay. So you do have to work with people very closely. But if you're the director, I do think that your job, in a way, is to take control of a film and to try and work out what your vision is. Seek help when you need it, realise who can do the things that you're not able to do, but... A good film is usually the realisation of a single vision. If somebody else has a difference of opinion to you, do you just say, OK, that's, I, I'm the director, I have the final say, that's it? Does it work like that? <laughs> no, that's always the last resort. <laughs> Part of the process of making a documentary, particularly for television, is you, you'll start editing and you might be editing for seven weeks. And usually about halfway through, your commissioning editor will come in and that's the person who's given you the money to go and make this film. So you can't just ignore what they say. But it often happens. They might make suggestions that you don't think are very good suggestions. What I usually do, and I wouldn't normally tell people this, but what I usually do is tell them that that's a really good idea and I'll try it. When I next see them, I'll tell them that it really was a good idea and I agree that it was a good idea, but I tried it and unfortunately it didn't work. Other times what I like to do is if there's something that I really want to keep in a film... When I see the commissioning editor, I might say, you know the last time you came in you had that really good idea? Well, we tried it, and it's fantastic, and it really works. I've never had a commissioning editor turn around and go, oh, that wasn't my idea, that was yours. And so you're always trying to coerce people, and that's exactly the same way that you'd make a documentary. You're trying to be friends with someone, you're trying to win their trust, you're trying to get them to do what you want them to do while actually making them feel like it's what they wanted to do in the first place. All of that is exactly those kind of skills and those kind of tricks that you might use to get contributors to be filmed and do what you want them to do are kind of exactly the same as the tricks that I'll try and pull on my employers as well. So I suppose what I'm saying is in order to pull that off, you've got to be quite slippery, quite tricky and a little bit manipulative. And that's really what a lot of good documentary makers have to do these days. Finally, I just wanted to ask, so for an hour-long or rather 40-minute doc with adverts, how many hours of footage do you film? Well, the worst was The Family. For The Family, we produced seven one-hour documentaries and we shot 3,000 hours of material. Uh, That's the worst because we had 24 cameras and we were filming for two months. On a self-shot project, I've often come back with about 100 hours of material for a one-hour film. Uh, that's usually suggests that I don't really know what I'm doing on that kind of... I, I'm filming things because I don't really know what I should be filming. At the moment, on the project I'm doing right now, I probably will shoot a total of 30 hours for a one-hour film because I'm very clear about exactly what I want on this one. But sometimes for an observational film, when you're just sort of hanging out and filming and you've just got to wafting a camera around, you can easily, you can easily rack up 100 more or more hours quite easily before you, you actually get to the cutting room. So... Uh, yeah, and it's always a sad moment on day one when you realise how much you've got to look at. That was Ollie Lambert. You can still watch Syria Across the Lines on 4OD. My name's Charlotte Moore. I'm the commissioning editor for documentaries at the BBC. And I'm here to tell you about Fresh Online, a new talent scheme that we've just launched for BBC Three. 
Fresh is already a fantastic talent scheme for new filmmakers that we run on BBC Three, where six films a year are given to new directors to make a film for broadcast for nine o'clock on BBC Three. Our new initiative, which we've just launched today, is Fresh Online. And the idea there, it's a fantastic, inspiring initiative, I think, where we're putting the call out to young filmmakers to come to us with their short-form documentaries, which we're then going to put online in a curated site that will be a showcase for the new talent that's around in Britain today. So we're looking for young filmmakers who've got stories to tell, who've got something they want to say about contemporary Britain, and we're asking them to get in touch with us to tell us about their film. And then online we'll have a site which will be curated by some of the best filmmakers in the country and also by BBC Commissioning and BBC Learning. And this site will then be, I hope, a community of documentary makers where we'll get to know who those documentary makers are. You're free from the constraints of budgets and schedules and all the other paraphernalia that goes with a broadcast programme, so we don't even need you to make them broadcast quality, but you'll become part of that documentary community in this country. We'll know who you are, and you'll also understand what we're trying to do, and I hope it will be a really exciting initiative that reaches out to find that raw talent that we want to. I think we live in an age, don't we, where, you know, only five years ago it was actually quite hard to make your own film. But actually now, you know, we've realised, particularly after Britain in a Day and a lot of the user-generated films that we've been making, we know there's a lot of people out there already making their own films and uploading them on YouTube. So I guess what I'm trying to do is harness those people, those people who are making those films, not just the funny films that are upon for a bit of a laugh, but actually people who really want to make documentaries. And we're asking them to come to us. It doesn't matter what it's about. It doesn't have to be part of a strand. It doesn't have to work for us at nine o'clock. It's free from all the normal constraints. What I would say is I do want people to come to us with films that really are right for a BBC Three audience. So I'm looking for ideas and I'm looking for films that really speak to what it's like to be a young person in contemporary Britain. But I guess what we want is, when I say raw talent, I don't mind whether you've never made a film before. I don't mind if this is, uh, you know, if it's made on your mobile phone. So raw talent is someone who's probably never made a film before. It could be someone who makes films in their bedroom or it could be someone uh, who's been at film college. It might be someone who's studied media. It might even be someone who's an AP who's been working in the industry. It's actually quite broad. But I suppose when I say raw, it's, it's, we're not asking you to have any experience before. And I think that's very liberating for us. And I hope it's liberating for the people who are going to take part. I mean, hopefully that inspiration, once we've got the site up and running, that inspiration will come from the other things you see. I think you should watch BBC Three. I think it's really important to understand what young people are watching, and that is a community already, BBC Three. So I would say watch television. But I'm hoping the site will really create that inspiration. And in a way, I want to be inspired by what you want to tell me about. So this is really a call out to people to tell us what they want to make rather than us giving you a brief on what I'm looking for. I want you to surprise us. So we're now in the Crucible Bar, and there's a few people around. I think an event is just about to start. Earlier I spoke to Kat Serzek from the National Film Board of Canada, who has just been at the forefront of a new form of documentary. It's online, it's not film, but it definitely looks like film. Kat described her project, High Rise, to me, and described why it's the future for documentary. 
Highrise is a many-year multimedia project, and you find it on the web. It's really simple, highrise.nfp.ca. And it's kind of, it's an experiment. It's an experiment in documentary, and really it's an exploration of vertical living around the world. And for us, the Highrise building is like a storytelling prism for any kind of human story. It's sort of reframing the human experience in the 21st century as we urbanize, as globalization just takes over every part of our lives and our world. The Highrise building becomes this really interesting instrument for investigating and interrogating the human condition. So quite simply, it's that. It's a documentary project. Um, it just happens to be delivered a little bit differently and created a little bit differently as well using the new digital tools that we have. And they're not really so new anymore. I mean, the internet has been around since 1969. So it's been around for quite a while. But uh, we still call it new media, the internet, the web docs, interactive. But essentially, we're using digital tools to tell and share our stories. And the projects are native to the web. So it's not a film with a companion site on the web. It really is a, we're telling our stories native to the web. So that involves text, audio, video, and interactivity. So you click on things and you can kind of uh, take your own journey through the material as it unfolds over a long period of time. And I also noticed that, that the sound was quite important to get the, the, the feel of the, of, the, of the flats, of the high-rise um, flats. I think that that's what makes a difference in terms of the difference between a website and an immersive documentary experience. Really, it's in the sound. Obviously, it's in the picture because our website is very photographic and visual, but it's also the sound. And we have an amazing sound designer, Janine White, who worked very closely with the coders, the computer coders, to figure out very good ways of being able to represent sound using very little bandwidth because the pictures were already taking up so much space. And so she crafted this amazing audio world, almost like a universe, and the way that things blend together. You know, when you watch a video on YouTube, you turn it off and everything stops. And what we wanted to do was avoid that kind of experience where there's an interruption. So there's always sound, there's always a flow, there's a fluidity in, in, in the audio experience. And as you guys know, you're, you're producing audio work. It's a really important part of an experience. And so we took a lot of time with it. And it's an important part of it. You mentioned coders. Do you know any, are, are those the types of skills that people wanting to get into the business now? Are those the types of new skills that they, they need to get into the industry? Absolutely. And it's not just documentarians. It's everybody. I mean, we've worked very closely with Mozilla Foundation. Mozilla are the creators of Firefox, which is one of the most commonly used browsers in the world. They have an amazing foundation that works on education. And they talk about coding, computer coding, as being the next literacy. So, you know, we in the 21st century, we need to read, we need to write, um, we need some math. But we also are going to need code, each and every one of us. So, yeah, documentarians are definitely included in that. There's lots of great ways that people can introduce themselves to web docs. One is just looking at them. There's a growing body of work in terms of interactive work. You can go to the crossover um, labs, and Sheffield certainly features some really interesting cutting-edge work. Tribeca Film Institute has a wonderful site. iDocs, which is a, a group of um, academics that sort of study the form, they have a really wonderful website, and you can follow some of the work that's emerging. But then there's lots of great um, tools. A lot of them are open source online that you can just tap into yourself and start playing on your own. There's a great group out of Boston, Massachusetts called Ziga, and they've created a software where you can actually blend together 
text, audio, video, and tell your own stories through that. There's Clint, there's Story Planet, there's Korsakoff System, which is uh, Florian Talhofer. He's here, actually, but he's based in Berlin, and he's developed a, a, a sort of a software that allows you to tell documentaries online in an interesting way. So there's lots of emerging platforms that uh, documentarians can use beyond the blog. I mean, the blog is an obvious one. I think we all kind of tell our own documentaries using Facebook and Twitter and email and all these digital tools, and there's a whole new generation of technologies that are software that's that's being now built to support even a, a richer and a more immersive way of telling stories. So there's lots of really great, great stuff to come, and there's lots that you can just touch right now for free online and tell your own story. That was Kat Zizek of the National Film Board of Canada. You can see more at nfc.ca. Would you say that it's around the Friday that your voice disappears? Well, normally, actually, I nearly lost my voice yesterday morning. What normally happens is that Hussein, the film programmer, gives me a shot of whiskey in the morning to bring my voice back. So I've just had one. (laughs) Uh, Good morning. It's Friday morning, 9.30. I'm here with Heather Crowell, festival director. Um, It's quite early in the morning. What did you get up to last night? I'm tired. (laughs) Well, last night, Thursday night... Uh, we had Michael Palin in at the uh, Crucible Theatre, so I did that. And then I had a little um, sponsor board and guests kind of gathering. And then I was roller skating at the roller disco, the Bowie roller disco. And um, there was about, I don't know, it looked like, I think there was about 800 people at the roller disco and about 500 of them were skating. And uh, it's amazing, actually, how many good skaters there are in the documentary industry, particularly the commissioning editors. Like, the Scandinavian commissioning editors are really good roller skaters because they grew up ice skating, I guess. And also the Canadians and the uh, guys from Los Angeles are good. It's quite competitive. I don't. I just go round in a little trance, just round and round. But some of the guys, they get really lucky as if they're playing... Hockey or something gets really speedy and fast and competitive. So if you can't skate, I always say to people, if you come to the Sheffield Dockfest roller disco, don't use it to learn how to skate. Please only skate if you know how to. So I don't need any broken bones. Touchwood. So it's the 20th year of the Dockfest. Um, how has the festival changed over the years? Well, I mean, when the festival started, you know, in the 90s, It was pretty much a very British affair and, um, you know, for about 12 years the the number of people coming to the Sheffield Dockfest stayed the same, around about 500 delegates and they all came pretty much from London. So it was like 500 people in London got on a train, came to Sheffield for a few days and had a great gathering but it didn't attract international delegates to the festival. And that's when I arrived in Sheffield. You know, we brought in commissioners and funders and distributors from all over the world in order for documentary makers to be able to meet the right people that they need to be able to survive in the in the industry. Yeah, in the first decade, there was about 2,000 Sheffield people at the festival. And now we have about 20,000. So that's another bit of um, explosive growth for us is the numbers of general public at the festival. The other thing that's changed is that our profile is now just through the roof. We're really regarded in the top two or three documentary festivals in the world now. There's not many people in the documentary industry who 
would miss Sheffield, you know? There's a lot of industry people here, but how would yeah. you sort of navigate yourself around the festival if you're a new filmmaker and you want to get as much as you can out of it? Well, I mean, the reason we run workshops all year is to try and stress to people that they have to be prepared. People have this very strange idea. It's very, uh, it's a fantastically stupid idea that you should go up and pitch to people as soon as you meet them. And it's just so wrong. Like, you should never do that. You should always be uh, willing to talk to people and get to know them and you know, commissioning editors, you need to demonstrate that you know what they are interested in and what they do and what their work is because you might be pitching the complete wrong film to the wrong person. So we always tell people, prepare, 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 and do your research, do a lot of research about who funds what, and we help people get the materials together before they arrive as well. Uh, I just have to say, I love your nails, by the way. <laughs> she has pink nails with Docfest written on them in black writing. They're amazing. Yeah, we went up to the nail bar the other day and got Docfest nails. And then so many people have done it since that I think the woman knows our font now without even looking. And my final question is, if you want to put on your own festival, what are the types of like skills and things you need to be able to do? Well, I think that um, programming is only a little bit of a festival. I think systems of organisation are equally as important. Process is as important as the ideas. And Sheffield is uh, system crazy. We are systems fanatics and we have very, very... Uh, rock-solid systems that no one can see. They're all digital and online as well. We did, we're very online kind of festival. Um, we built our own administration system online. And I think process is very important. It's not just about the curating. So when people arrive, they have to feel like it's under control and it's organised and professional. And I think um, you want to make people feel welcome, but you don't want them to feel like it's chaos. You want them to know that it's all sorted and it's all organised. And that's what I think we have achieved here at Sheffield. That was Heather Crowell, director of the Sheffield Docfest. And as Heather said, amongst the festival staff and filmmakers, there's also loads of commissioners looking for new talent. So let's hear from a few of them now. We start with Nick Fraser, who has been the editor of Storyville on BBC4 since it started in 97. And he's up for DocFest to pick up the Sheffield Inspiration Award for his work nurturing new talent. I caught up with Nick outside the Delegate Centre to congratulate him. I think it's rather special getting an Inspiration Award because I never thought I'd get one. I didn't really think that I inspired people. Really? Why not? Well, I think you get up in the morning and you do your job and what you're conscious of most of the time is how much you piss people off. You either don't fulfill their expectations or say rude things by mistake or appear arrogant or dismissive but actually to be told that you had done positive things for people is really very very special so i'm a young filmmaker i want to get into the industry what advice would you give me on how to get through what things would you say to inspire me have you been to film school or not no well i think my feeling would be don't go to film school why not because a lot of film school is based on a very academic notion of filmmaking that is not in touch with, actually the requirements of television certainly, but not in touch with the way people love film in the present. Actually what I'd do is to make a list, two, two lists, I'd make a list of subjects you're really interested in, 
whether they're fictional or non-fictional, whether they're films or TV shows or whatever. And then I'd make a list of people in the industry, which is slightly harder, who you think can help you. And I'd sort of go down through these lists and just try persistently to check out every subject and who's doing it, but also to check out every person and how, how you can get to see them. I think the list of people is very important. You said make a list of interests. Would you say genre is important? Personally, I'm interested in science yes. and human biology particularly. Would you say that um, having a, an interest in a specific genre or area of documentary is important? I think if you're interested in human biology, then what you'd have to do is to figure out how to turn that interest into something that people want to watch. I think you have to get out of abstract ideas into concrete things very quickly because all films, all TV programs, all radio programs is about things and how they happen and stories, etc., etc. What you should do is look at the Wellcome Trust who dish out scholarships and they dish out development money and they're very progressive and very, very encouraging about people who are interested in exactly the areas you're interested in. It's, it's almost like you need to become a, a kind of self-made Google indexer and you need to find out in the subject you're interested, all the subsets, all the categories and apply them to making programs, making films, whatever. And so would that work for any subject? subject? I, I think so. I tell you, my daughter's 23, she's just finished university and it's enormously different to when I was young. When I was young, life was basically very boring and predictable. That you had to find a way of getting a job at what was called ITV in those days or the BBC. And once you got in, you ascended the ladder. So here, it's rather like it's like a 3D version of things without coherent ladders. There are ladders going all directions and it's 3D. And you, you, you don't go down like in Snakes and Ladders, but you go laterally and this way and that way. And that's the image of contemporary media. Everything leads to something else, but it's up to you to figure out the way it leads. And there's a huge amount of insecurity, but there's also a far, far greater degree of choice than was ever around when I, when I was younger, when I was trying to do this game, you know. So I think on the whole, it's a very positive environment, but you have to be very adaptable, very positive, and very cunning at how you manoeuvre yourself from one job to another. So what do people need to do um, before they get to the, to the pitch stage? I think that if you're in your 20s and you're trying to do a storyville, what I would advise is do one of two things or both. Maybe shoot a bit of it, or a lot of it if you want. As far as I'm concerned, you can shoot 60 hours if you want. And the second thing I think you should do is find people who have an interest that you share and who have some kind of presence or clout in the media, like a company that, not necessarily a company we've dealt with, but a company who press all the right buttons for you and who, who you think, if you, if, you, if you say, well, look, I'm a beginning filmmaker, I want to do a storyville, it's difficult for us because we, you know, we're supposed to produce documentaries that to standard for the BBC and we would have to take a risk with someone new. There we have, we take some each year. But it always helps if they come to us with someone who'll tell us this is going to be great. I believe in this person, and I believe in the subject they're interested in. So I'd find that person. I mean, I think there are quite a lot of nice fatherly, godfatherly, motherly, godmotherly types around the British film industry, and I think you have to search them out. That was Nick Fraser, editor of Storyville on BBC4. And Nick asked me to mention these two internships available on the programme every year. Check the BBC website for more details.
Hello, I'm Rachel Hillman and I'm the Broadcast Games and Film Manager at the Wellcome Trust. The Wellcome Trust is a global charitable foundation uh, dedicated to achieving extraordinary improvements in human and animal health. And we do this by supporting research, but we also explore the way that research impacts on society and on the individual. And that's where our work in broadcast games and film come in, because we work with documentary makers to support them really in exploring the wealth of creative potential that science offers them, offers us as a society. And we offer funding, but we also have initiatives that kind of help people develop in their careers. So we funded a number of documentaries that have been at the festival. The English Surgeon is one that lots of people might have heard of. Here's Johnny, which is a fantastic one about an animator with multiple cirrhosis. And this year we gave a development award to The Man Who Mind Exploded. So we don't just work in factual, we also work in drama and film and in video games. This is a a more recent exploration of the trust, but we're really interested in the way that games offer us the opportunity to be the experimenter, to play with ideas. And so we're offering our development awards both to the uh, development of game ideas and to the full-scale production of games. We can fund anything from very small-scale development projects up to £10,000 to up to £300,000 for production. We have very clear funding schemes which are all available via our website, so we have an application process. But I would suggest if you have an idea, do come in and talk to us. We have a dedicated team to talk to people about their grant ideas and support them in, in putting applications forward to the Wellcome Trust. Welcome believe that science is a very important part of our culture and an important part of how we understand our lives and the world around us. Documentary, games, film are all about the same thing, trying to explore what it means to be an individual in the world today. And that's exactly what science can kind of put a spotlight on. And that's why we think it's so important that science is covered in interesting, innovative ways just across the whole spectrum of broadcast film and games. That was Rachel Hillman of the Wellcome Trust. So we're in the Duckfest Meat Market, that's M-E-E-T, just so you know. It's full of aspiring filmmakers, brim full of ideas. All they need to do is find a commissioner to meet with and pitch to. Luckily, the meat market is full of them, including Lena Prestwood, a commissioning editor at Channel 4. She's responsible for First Cuts, the Doc Strand, where new directors can get that first commission on the channel. But changes are coming to the programme, as she told me earlier. Whereas previously when they were half-hour documentaries, it was a great opportunity for people who were APs to kind of step up and make their mark. And I think that's still very much the case. But now that the slot is an hour, I would say that the kind of average applicant and successful uh, first-cut commissioned director would be about the DV director level with about a minimum of six years of quite linear trajectory and experience um, in their career. So what I'm looking for when I look at the CVs that come in, I'm looking for people that have got a good documentary background. Um, ideally, people that have had some sort of edit experience and I think now there's been a growth in long-running series particularly on Channel 4 and places like 24 Hours and A&E and One Born Every Minute there's an increasing number of people that have had edit experience 
But equally, they might not have, in exchange for that, what they might not have had is the experience of working to a director and being kind of an on-the-ground AP, where they're having to get access and form relationships with contributors rather than, rather than them coming to them as part of the narrative. Because obviously, 24 hours in A&E, what's so wonderful about it is that you don't know who's coming through the door. And you mentioned CVs. How do you find um, new filmmaking talent? Gosh, where do I find them? Where do I find them? Uh, well, they do find me a lot of the time. Um, we're incredibly easy to uh, get hold of, actually, at Channel 4. So you directly email me and we get back to people, typically in 21 days. I do urge people, if I haven't got back to them within sort of 10, 12 days, to nudge me, that's not a problem. What I like people to do is email me with a CV a sense of an idea if they've got one they don't have to have an idea specifically that they're pitching um, and a cover letter that kind of gives me an idea of their kind of I suppose their filmmaking personality what they love about documentaries what they watch that's very important people often forget to tell me what they consume there's very much a focus on what it is they want to make but actually taste and likes and dislikes and what people don't like is as important as knowing what people do like because that gives me then more to work on in terms of understanding um, where I could maybe put them if they haven't got a company they're attached to um, the kind of projects that I might have that have been pitched in by indies but that don't yet have a director attached I'm doing a session this afternoon about the, the value of short ducks to filmmakers and I would say they're absolutely invaluable. Recently we had a short cut, um, a first cut called Confessions of a Male Stripper and Rachel Tracy, the director of that, she had pitched the year before first cut and not got it and kind of felt quite despondent about it and kind of it was close but no biscuit. And then she emailed me and I was kind of asked the million dollar question, kind of, well, have you got anything that you can show me? And she just sent me a link to her Vimeo channel which had a load of three-minute wonders that she'd made years before set in Ikea that I was able to watch quite quickly and get a sense of her personality. And then stuff she'd just done off her own back that was quite random but showed that she had a, she had a really good way with contributors and had a brilliant sense of humour. So when I was pitched access to a male stripper troupe, I immediately thought of her in my kind of mental Rolodex of people. And I think kind of... Because she'd shown that, I suppose, that initiative before, it kind of it made her 3D almost in my mind because I'd seen her work and I kind of could see what she might bring to the table and what the final film might look like. And lo and behold, there were no, there were, you know, she made a brilliant film and I was really pleased with it. So are those the types of stories that you're interested in? Because Channel 4 has a, a very distinct feeling about it. Are there any particular stories that you're interested in and types of stories that you're not interested in? No, I think it's a good question to ask. I mean, the thing about Confessions of a Male Stripper, it was a really classic out-and-out pop doc with lots of cock as I like to say, which is very, very naughty. But that's not to say I always want to go for that kind of sexy, kind of tabloid thing. There's a filmmaker called Tom Pullen, who's absolutely brilliant and really excited to be working with him. And he's brought me an idea called Missing, which is about people who go missing but aren't necessarily who maybe have walked away from their lives what it's like for the people left behind and the the aim of the film is to actually hear from people who have walked away and have chosen to leave their lives and I think that's a really interesting story I think it's very powerful but it's certainly not what you'd call a pop doc and then I'm doing a kind of performance uh, documentary that's coming out of Pulse which is 
going to be set in Croydon and looking at the payday uh, cycle for different people. Apparently this, the 16 to 34 generation is now the most financially unstable since the war. And I wanted to find a way to explore that that felt different and creative and kind of it's that's emerging from the genre of musical documentaries that um century have done so well in the past like felton sings and songbirds for example but pulse are an interesting company because they bring to the table a real history of making beautiful promos uh, for musicians and lots of kind of pop content for channel four and i thought actually they've got a real authority in that space of young artistic creatively perhaps a bit unpredictable incongruous stuff so i'm quite excited to be working with them on that so look it's a real mixed bag and i want to make sure my job is to deliver every year 10 brilliant new directors to the industry that my colleagues can then go on to commission in other Channel 4 series or singles and in other strands. So I think I've kind of got a responsibility to kind of create some kind of tonally a kind of diverse pool of talent there who can do different jobs. I wouldn't want it all to feel like one film or the other. A lot of the documentaries that people have that exactly that wow moment over you tweet about on Twitter, you go on about it all the time, you hashtag. Does that influence the type of stories you're interested in afterwards? I think ratings are obviously a really important part of anything. For me, the thing that's most important is what happens to the filmmakers afterwards. In terms of the stories, it's for 10 and 11 o'clock, really. I mean, it's an 11 o'clock slot, but hopefully they'll go at 10. Um, I've got one on Monday, Scientologists at War, that's going on at 9, which is just fantastic for The Strand. So I'm really pleased about that. But no, for your first film, I think it's really important to pick a film that people want to watch, that people will get you noticed. I'm really not interested in commissioning stories about people's personal experiences and lives because I think it's not because I don't like those films, I do like those films. But in the interests of someone launching their career in the best possible way, I think try and make a film that will get you noticed by a wide audience that show that you can tell stories for a wide audience. I think ratings, like I said, I think obviously they are important to us, but it's about what that moment in someone's career what that first cut means in terms of setting the tone for their career um, who they are as a filmmaker making it a genuine calling card um, generally films that kind of exist within a, a world that's manageable to be access to an institution or a place or a group of people is quite good or a narrative a story that's quite um, perhaps a bit more linear that's easier to tell is quite good I think it's good to be ambitious, but also this is your first film. It's not the career-defining film. And so, I, you know, I think it's important for people to kind of think about the balance between being ambitious and not making a rod for your own back. A simple story, beautifully told, is far more impressive as a first film than a really complex film told fairly well. Oh, well, thank you, Lena. hope you enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you, Sandra. <laughs> Uh, my name is Walter Murch. I'm a film editor and sound uh, designer, and I'm here with the film Particle Fever, which I have been editing for the last year on the Large Hadron Collider and its search for the, the so-called God particle, the, the Higgs boson. I started out working in documentaries in the 1960s, and then shortly after that uh, moved into theatrical features the main difference, uh, I think, is the construction of the story. 
that with a theatrical feature, your starting point is a story that has already been considered uh, at the screenplay level. And so, in a sense, uh, the material you're working with is like pieces of a Lego kit. You can find new uses for those pieces, but they have all been generated by this sort of meta-structure of the screenplay, which uh, has been thought about by many people for years uh, before filming starts. Whereas documentaries, especially a film like Particle Fever, there was simply the idea that this machine is going to turn on and a an entire field, scientific field, will be transformed in the process by its results. And what will happen? We don't know. So let's film it and see what happens. So that's fine, and that, that gets you a lot of material, but then how do you tell this in a story that can occupy audiences and, and entertain them and inform them for more than an hour, uh, involving, the, in a sense, the writing, except you're not so much writing with words as you are using the raw material that has been shot to write a story. There's a scene between two of the physicists. Uh, one is 60 years old and the other is 70 years old, and they're both nervous uh, because their entire lifetime career depends on the results of this machine. Uh, is Has everything been a waste? Have they been down the wrong path or not? Fascinating subject matter because people's lives are on the line in a sense, but it was conjured up quickly uh, and spontaneously and the camera was only able to be in one position during the, the shoot. And so there was no alternate coverage of the material. And even if there was alternate coverage, one of the scientists was up against a window, so there was a lot of back flare. So I could only use a little bit of that, and there wasn't much of it anyway. So the, then the problem comes, how do you make all of these things work together? And what I uh, wound up doing was using, say, the, the wide shot in which you're looking at one of the characters over the shoulder of another character. And then at the point where you want to cut to something else, I would take a different part of the same shot and recompose, zooming in, in a sense, to the close-up of one of the characters and then gradually zoom back digitally uh, to include the other character. Whereas if I hadn't done that there would have been a sudden jerk where you would see that people were in very different positions. In the old days, meaning film, to do that would be very expensive. And even if you did it, the grain structure of film was such that if you zoomed in that close, you would see the individual grains of the film, which you don't necessarily want to see in this case. So because digital has no grain structure, you can do that with impunity, relative impunity. You can push these things too far, but if you're careful about it, you can um, do it. And as the digital chip uh, on which the uh, image is recorded, these are getting bigger and bigger. There may come the time where we will uh, actually sh overscan, shoot uh, much wider than we intend to shoot, and that will give us the ability to uh, widen out during a shot as well as to zoom in during a shot. John Swiftson, 
creative director and producer behind films like 127 Hours and Touching the Void. Um, you've worked in factual and in drama. Where's the moral line between what's real and what's not real? That's always a really interesting sort of debate. And when you do what I've been doing for a long time in my career, which is trying to find great true stories and then put them on screen, however you put them on screen as a documentary or a drama or a film or a feature documentary, one of the biggest challenges is this whole veracity issue, how much you want to modify your story to make it play better. Now, I'm sort of... I came from a very puritanical, current affairs background where we were totally about respecting the core facts of a story, and I've still got a lot of that to this day. And so in my ideal world, you'd like to think that the story is so good that you don't need to muck around with it. You know, and in a way, some of the best sort of stories you're doing, you don't need to muck around with them, or you may just need to compress time a little bit and compress a few characters, but keep very close to the key facts of a story. So I don't have a moral dilemma as such, I think, because I think all the time, at what level are we doing this? And I always try to do it at a really good level of accuracy. But it's perfectly legitimate to do a story that's inspired by a true story. But the key thing is, you know, if you buy a can of beans, you see on the label what's inside the can of beans. If you're watching a film, I think you have to be clear, what is it? Is this uh, a true story, or is it based on a true story, or inspired by a true story? And all those words carry a slightly different meaning. So it's fine to take a true story and then adapt it, you know? But just be honest with your audience, be it in the cinema or on TV. Where do you find these stories? Did, did the, the, the background in current affairs help you with that? The contemporary stories, you might just read about them or hear about them. You know, I do read newspapers, I do read magazines, I do watch telly. So sometimes you think, bloody hell, that's a good story. Sometimes you hear about them because there's a book. Or sometimes you forget about them, then a book comes out or an article and makes you think about it in a different way or someone who's been involved in a story. We're doing a couple of those sort of things right now. You know, they write their book and they talk very directly about something that has happened to them that you weren't aware about, and you can see that there's lots of great twists and turns to the story. Stories are all around us and they happen every day, but there's got to be something magical about a story that makes it all the way to the small screen, and almost even more magical that makes it all the way to the big screen, you know. Um, and how do you decide which uh, way to go with it? Rather, straight documentary or drama? How do you decide? That, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, point you raised there because the, the way we do it, because we work in documentary we do, or we do hybrid where you do uh, uh, docudrama where you've got reenactment or we do uh, fully scripted and we work on film and we work on TV. So what do you do? Or do you do it as a single uh, or a series if it's television? And I think every story you look at and think, what is the best way of telling that story? You know, if you're trying to show a world that there's no archive, or let's say you're trying to do a World War I story. Now, no one's alive from World War I anymore. There's very little archive. So maybe the best way to capture, say, the drama, I don't know, about life in the trenches, is now you're really forced to go down the drama route because you've got to be able to capture that atmosphere of what was it like. 
But sometimes, if it's a true story and there is real people talking about it and there is real archive or there's real sequences you can do now, then there's nothing like the power of a true story done as a documentary. So sometimes documentary is the best way to do it. You know, that amazing film Senna, that could have been done as a drama, but it was so much more powerful that you were seeing the real guy and you were seeing that archive that took you into that world, you know, beyond what you normally see on TV. You know, that was an exemplary example of how to do it in a genre that was really the best for the story. In TV at the moment, it just seems like there's... there's much more that the lines are a bit more blurred as between between drama and factual and especially with programs like TOWIE and the only way is Essex do you think that that will happen more in the future okay so two things there the the, the lines are blurring all the time and I think that's a good thing why not mix elements you know be it documentary and reenactment and archive or graphics or whatever else I think the name of the game in the modern TV environment is to mix things up, I think. And also, you constantly want to look at ways of changing the form. And and we were talking about this on a panel uh, yesterday, just about how exciting it is just to play around with the elements, the sort of toolbox you have at your disposal. Let's mix them up, and then let's... You know, do it in a way that there's no obvious... You can't see the joins between the different elements. We were talking about that brilliant BAFTA-nominated film, The Imposter, you know, and the director of that was on the panel I was doing yesterday. And that was a very classy, excellent film, in my view, where they were blurring between documentary and reenactment in order to tell that amazing story. So it's completely fair game to blur the elements. Now... In that sort of area, like TOWIE and the, those various other shows, you know, th- that's the big thing in America. And we're seeing it now in the UK with shows like TOWIE, where you're getting these heavily produced, structured, you know, a lot of factual shows now, you know, the sort of factual entertainment shows in America are incredibly highly produced, i.e. things are arranged to happen. Yeah, you know, that doesn't mean it's unethical because that's just it. It just is. That's the way those shows work. So I think they are fine as well. It's all part of the TV landscape, and as long as you're not seeking to deliberately mislead, which I don't think they do, then they're fine in my book. With with something like 127 hours, I'm I'm assuming like there was there was a writer on board, um, there was other people involved. But has there any been ever been any been pressure to? to change a story or to, to make it more, I don't know, marketable or more interesting? I mean, 127 Hours was done as a proper feature film uh, with uh, you know, a brilliant director, Danny Boyle, and a brilliant writer and so on. Uh, but it stayed very faithful to the core facts of that amazing story. It's back to you know, my belief about the best stories. You don't want to muck around with them. That's why you're doing with them. That satisfaction, for me, it's so much more powerful if you've just seen an amazing film and you know it's true rather than just a work of fiction in the head of the writer. I think that's a great thing. Uh, And so there's a fair amount of leeway about being respectful to the, the facts of the story but also being able to get it to play dramatically. You know, a lot of it is sort of editing. You know, edit. you edit in documentaries, you're sort of having to edit and compress a story 
to get it to play in 60 or 90 minutes or two hours or something. So it's all legitimate as long as it's done properly and with some sensitivity. So I think that's a good way of doing it. Well, John Smithson, many thanks. Well, my time in Sheffield is coming to an end and I've got a train to catch. But before we go, we've just time to check in with producer John Batsek from Passion Pictures, the man behind Searching for Sugar Man and The Imposter. He was in conversation with BAFTA on Thursday afternoon and I spoke to him just after he'd finished. I started by asking John, what attracts him to a good story? I think what attracts me to a good story is the sense that it's a story that works on many different levels and that because of that it will have a chance to appeal to as broad an audience as possible. When you say a broader audience as possible, does that mean all types of people, everybody, everywhere? How do you do that when some of the stories are very specific, some have a twist at the end? Is that what catches people in? I think what I mean by a broad audience is it's not everyone everywhere, but it's, you know, if, if there's a film with a twist, is it going to just appeal to people who like films with a twist or can we make it in such a way as it will appeal, it will have other elements to it that appeal to other people, if that makes any sense. So, you know, even if you're making a really sad film about someone who was killed and when a bomb blew up in the UN building in Baghdad, are we able to make it in a way that actually it's a love story and it's about a mother and a son, about a man and his girlfriend, about, you know, what are the other layers within that story that mean that it can appeal to people who have an interest in that aspect of the story? Okay, um, so what advice would you give to people getting into the documentary industry now? I think the best piece of advice I can give is, is, is that one should never be deterred by a worry that you might not know exactly what it is you're doing. And, and because that's how I've always done everything. I've never known exactly what it was I was doing. And I've, never, I've just never been afraid to throw myself in at the deep end and back myself to be able to swim rather than sink. And I genuinely think that that's an important piece of advice. It's not to worry, not to spend time focusing on what you don't know, just to back yourself to be able to do the best you can do. And, and also, I, I think hopefully maybe people can take comfort in the fact that, you know, I've been doing it for 15 years. And I literally, when I started, I knew absolutely nothing. And every film I'm on, I, there's always a moment when I think I'm in way over my head and I just somehow managed to figure it out. You always feel like you're the person that doesn't know anything and everyone else has this big secret that they're all in on and you're just there scrambling trying to get that answer and trying to fit in with everyone else. Do you know what? That is exactly how I feel. <laughs> Seriously, don't. that's great. Know it and just go through it. Because you know just as much as... Well, you maybe don't know just as much as me, but if you don't, that's because I've been around 30 years longer than you. I really believe confidence is an, plays a huge part in... I mean, if you look at sport, you look at someone, you know, you look at a footballer like Fernando Torres, incredible goal scorer, loses his confidence, can't score a goal. Does it feel good to hear me tell you that I feel the same way? Yeah, it yeah. feels really good, actually. Everyone has that problem, so maybe you're not alone. Oh, and also, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. Don't see it as a problem. That's life, you know. It's like no one really, no one's always 100% sure of what they do. And if you have that feeling that I always had inside me, which is I can figure this out. Some, whether, I, I, whether it's by talking to someone else and getting them to figure it out or whether I'll figure it out myself, I will figure it out. Just hang on to that if you have that feeling because that's what gets you through. Uh, John, thank you. It's a pleasure. Right, I've got my luggage. It's quite heavy, my complimentary bag, my ticket, but we still need to have a look at what's coming up on the BAFTA calendar. There are some great masterclasses around the UK on Thursday, 20th of June in Edinburgh, where we're with shadow dancer and red riding cinematographer Rob Hardy. On the same day, we're also doing an event with costume designer Sandy Powell at Pinewood Studios. 
Sandy is responsible for the costumes in Hugo, Gangs of New York, Shakespeare in Love and loads more. On Wednesday, 26th of June, we're talking composing for film with Gabriel Yared at the BFI South Bank in London. And on July 21st, we head to Birmingham's Electric Cinema, where BAFTA-winning supervisor sound editor Eddie Joseph will be talking about post-production sound. Short filmmakers, listen up. Our popular all-day short-sighted event, all about how to get your film seen, will be hitting Glasgow on 9th of July. And on Saturday, 13th of July, the Sergeant Disc BAFTA Filmmakers Market returns to BAFTA HQ in London, featuring a range of individual sessions on development, financing, agents, casting and more. All of these events are guaranteed to be popular, so book tickets now on BAFTA.org. And I promise we're almost finished. Remember, you can get all the latest news on upcoming BAFTA events by signing up for our fortnightly newsletter on BAFTA.org. And on Twitter, follow us at BAFTA Guru. And if you've been inspired by any of these topics described in this podcast, or if you have any feedback, please get in touch at podcast at BAFTA.org. And that's it. Many thanks to all my guests. Heather Crowell, Walter Murch, John Smithson, Kat Zerzek, John Batsek, Nick Frazier, Ollie Lambert, and Lena Prestwood. My name is Sandra Townsend. The producer was Matt Hill, with help from John Maloney. Thanks for listening. Bye.